So glad that you're with us in the room today or worshiping online. We're making our way through various texts in the book of Isaiah as we're in the season of Advent. And today we're talking about what it means to belong. Last Sunday, my family and I fulfilled our normal Christmas tradition, which was to go to a Christmas tree farm and to cut down a live tree and to bring it home. And I trust that you know that every Christmas holiday always is kind of a bit of a mixed bag of things that are amazing and things that are not so amazing. Uh, For instance, maybe you go to a family gathering and the food is amazing, but your family not so much. Or um, maybe around your dinner table this year, there will sadly be an empty seat. Or the relationship thing that you hoped would be resolved has only gotten worse in this season. That's, that's just kind of what Christmas can be like in general. The holidays can be a little bit of a mixed bag, if we're honest. And when we were cutting down our Christmas tree, I found the same sort of experience. We found a gorgeous tree, cut it down, brought it home. My wife decorated it. Our house looks amazing right now, so festive. But while we were walking around, I saw a couple trees that I thought kind of were a bit of a metaphor of 2020, just kind of how we would think about our experience. For instance, uh, there was this one tree, and I put it on my social media page, and I said, 2020 Christmas be like, and it's like this. So, like, that just kind of fits what life feels like right now. Like, from a distance, I thought, oh, that's a great tree. I got up close. I was like, yeah, not so much. That feels like 2020. Like, I thought 2020 was going to be amazing. Then we get in it. It's like, yeah, don't put any candles near that tree. That thing's going to go up in smoke. Or, or maybe there's just this internal sort of frustration that you feel. You kind of sense that. Just kind of waiting. What's the next thing that could go wrong? And every week, it seems like something else happens. My daughter, Savannah, found a tree. She's like, Dad, look at this one. And we called it the strangle tree. So there was like this little spot. She was grabbing it and shaking it, sort of like, this is so frustrating. And uh, so those were two images of just kind of what I think 2020 has been a bit like for us. And quite frankly, every holiday has some mix of emotions connected to it. We're always sort of living in this dual reality of both celebrations and a little bit of grief. Moments of great joy, and also things that we feel that are missing. When life gets really uncertain, there's some questions that we tend to ask ourselves. And if 2020's been good for anything, it's been good for these kinds of questions. Maybe you're asking them. Questions like, what's really important to me? Or, where can I really place my hope? Or, what do I trust in? There's another question that our text today, Isaiah 43, asks, and it's this question. Where do I belong? Where do I belong? How long has it been since you've asked that question? Maybe you remember being a junior higher and walking into a room and having this really insecure feeling like, mm, who are my friends and what do people think of me? Maybe you look at things on social media and you wonder, am I missing out? Maybe you've had friends that aren't in your orbit anymore for any number of reasons and you would kind of look at your life and just think, what, what group, what people do I belong to? The word belong in our culture is really important. It, it, it means to be in something. 
like in a family or in a team or in a group. It means to be a member, something that you have an identity marker with, which is one of the reasons why our, our mission statement as a church is igniting a passion to follow Jesus. And then from there, our discipleship strategy is to belong, grow, and multiply. So that belong piece means that before you like enjoy all of the benefits of the programming and figure out how to multiply yourself, you gotta settle the first issue, and that's do you belong to Jesus? And then what body of believers do you belong to? So where, where are your people? What's interesting is that 2020 has not been good for this belonging reality. I read a report this last week that some folks estimate that 20% of people that were in church at the beginning of 2020 are never coming back to church. Now, at the same time, I met somebody after first service who came to faith in Christ just a couple months ago because of watching online and Jesus grabbed a hold of her heart. So there's good things and there's bad things. There's people looking at different churches and relationships are changing during this season. There's a lot of fluidity going on. I'm sure you sense that and feel that. So belonging is a really important issue. In Isaiah 43, the people of Israel need to be reminded to whom they belong because they're in a hard place. The, the book is set in the midst of these prophetic words to the nation of Israel while they're in exile. The, the city of Jerusalem has been destroyed. The people have been taken captive. They're now in a foreign land. And they need some assurance. When, when it's really become dark and they kind of wonder, has God forgotten about us? They needed to be reminded that, no, no, no. You belong to God. And why? Because of God. If we move it into the New Testament, here's the summary of what this sermon in its, total, in its totality is about. It's this, that through Jesus, you belong to God because of God. So the beauty of what the Bible tells us is that our belonging in Christ is not owing to our worthiness, it's owing to God's glory. So what I wanna do is I wanna look at this text, Isaiah 43, through three different angles. We wanna see how belonging results and helps us to understand that God personally intervenes in our lives. He personally intervenes. Secondly, that God's plans are never hindered. You belong and are so important to him and nothing can hinder his plans. And third, that God's glory is going to be revealed. And belonging to him is all connected to his glory, his plans, and his intervention. So let's start. First, truth number one, God personally intervenes in our lives. You need to know that the book of Isaiah in total is about God and his glory. It's a glorious, wonderful book. We were in the book of James a couple of weeks ago and Isaiah and James have some amazing parallels, but one of the unique things about Isaiah is its elevated view of what God is like and the beauty of his glory. In fact, kind of a summary verse would be this one in Isaiah 48, 11, where God says, for my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. How should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. So if you wanted to underline one verse in the book of Isaiah that summarizes the theme of what this entire book is about, it would be that one. Now you need to know that Isaiah 43 is set in the midst of a little subsection in the book of Isaiah that began in chapter 40, where God's people are given prophetic words about how they're to think when this exile comes. 
And Isaiah 40 begins with the words, comfort, comfort my people. And so God is offering to his people words of encouragement, words of of comfort when they are facing the hard press of difficult circumstances and their exile. In chapter 41 is a encouragement not to fear. We study this in the beginning of COVID when we wrestled with the issue of anxiety and how we could fear not. And chapter 42 is about the suffering servant, which would be fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus. And in verse 43, or in chapter 43, rather, Isaiah is helping God's people to understand that there is no one else worthy of your trust than your creator, redeemer. And I hope today, if you're a follower of Jesus, that this text will be an incredible encouragement to you, that in the midst of so many things that are uncertain, that there is something that is certain, And that is who God is. Look at verse one, we'll begin. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. Now, this text is primarily written to the people of Israel, but we're gonna see some New Testament expansion texts that relate to all of us in our present day. And what we see that Isaiah does here is connects both where they are located in history to the fact that God is their creator. He appeals back to the foundation of life itself, that God created them, he formed them. And this is not merely an historical fact, rather this is something that is personal, something that's relational. So can I just remind you this morning that God knew exactly what he was doing when he designed you and put 2020 in your life. You never need to wonder for one moment if God has good plans and if he has a plan for your life. He knew what family you should be born in. He knew what era you should live in. He knew what year you should, be, should arrive on this earth. He knew whether you should be married or single. He knew what kind of career you would have. He, he knows the very gifts and talents and abilities that you've been given. God put all of these things together, and it's by design because he's the creator God. All of this is designed to bring assurance and comfort It says, fear not, I have redeemed you. I've called you by name, verse one says, and you are mine. Take note here of this personal comfort that God offers to his people based upon not what they've done, but what he's done. Based upon the fact that he's their redeemer, that he has created them. He calls them by name, which means that he knows them personally. He knows them as his own children. He says, they are mine. In order to understand what's happening in this text, you need to understand how incredibly God-centric it is, that God is personally intervening in the lives of his children. Look at verses one through seven here, and I've highlighted for you all of the personal statements of ownership that God identifies in this text. Just follow along as I read it. You'll get the theme. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Skip ahead. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom. 
because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. I give men in return for you. Fear not, I am with you. I will bring your offsprings from the east. From the west, I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who's called by my name, who I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. You see the point? 13 times in that little text, God says, I, 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 I. What is the point of that? The point of that is this, that his promise and his assurance in the midst of difficulty and hardship is not the absence of things like water or rivers or fire or flame. In fact, verse two says, when you pass through the waters, all of those things, the circumstances of life, they are going to be difficult and they are going to be hard. But what God promises is in the midst of those hardships, you will never be abandoned because you belong to him. It means that in the midst of hardship and difficulty, God intervenes in your life, not because you're worthy or because we're a great catch or because we've done amazing things for him. No, no, no. The reason that God intervenes is because he is God. And why is that hopeful? It's hopeful because number one, it reminds us of the powerful creator who governs all events in human history. And it also means that God's willingness to rescue me doesn't depend upon me. My goodness, if it depended upon me, that would be a sad case. I'd be really nervous. And yet what God says is you belong to me. In fact, I belong to him even before I knew I belonged to him. God is going to gather his people from the four corners of the earth. Verses five and six, fear not, I am with you. I'll bring your offspring from the east. From the west, I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up to the south. Do not withhold. He will bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth. The idea here is this, this, this beautiful affection that God has for his people. Their scattering and their difficulties do not diminish at all his love for them or his willingness to intervene on behalf of them. So we, we leave that in the Old Testament for a moment. Let's, let's move this into the New Testament and set it in the scene of Advent. Church, I trust that you know that we need no greater example of the personal intervention of a loving God who's coming after his people who belong to him than the incarnation of Jesus at Christmas. John 1.14 says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Matthew 1.21 says, you will call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins and you will call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. And the book of Hebrews tells us that because he himself has suffered, when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So the idea is that Jesus intervenes in our lives by understanding what it's like to be human, by entering into our world to be our redeemer, and the arc of history, where things are going, is for God to be with us even in the new heavens and the new earth. Revelation 21.3 says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them. So this is the story of the Bible. It is that God intervenes in the lives of his people at great cost to himself. So if you're a Christian, let me just encourage you during these days to be reminded of all the ways that God has historically intervened in your life, especially if right now you're in a spot where you're looking at life going, God, what in the world are you doing? 
In fact, can I just tell you something? I find that most of my life is spent wondering what is God doing? That's kind of the normative posture. So if I ever see exactly what he's doing, I count that as a blessing, because normally I don't really fully know. And yet that's not a place of darkness and frustration, but rather a place that we can rest and trust because we know that God is going to intervene. You know, there's some people who are so desperate in their desire for certainty. They want to know what's going on. They want to understand what's taking place. They look around themselves and they, they see things that are difficult or challenging. And they, they, they think that true emotional refuge will come when they know what's happening. And yet the Bible tells us over and over that certainty is not nearly as safe as sovereignty. So one of the choices that you have to make if you're a Christian is what are you gonna spend more time thinking about, certainty or sovereignty? Because I'm just telling you, if you think about certainty and you have to have certainty in order to be okay, this is not a really great time to live <laughs> because everything's uncertain. But if your hope and joy is in the sovereignty of God, believing that God works all things for his good, he has intervened in the past and he will intervene again at some point in time in ways that you don't understand, that maybe you don't even know about, or at some point in time you may not even fully know in this lifetime, that's where true emotional safety and refuge can be found. Truth number one, God personally intervenes in our lives. Truth number two is this, that God's plans are never hindered. You know, it's one thing to know that you belong to God and that he's personally intervening in human history and in our lives, but it's also critical to know the power that lies behind God's plans. To know that you're loved is one thing, it's amazing but to know that you're loved by an all-powerful God, oh, man, that's an entirely different matter. In, in verses eight to 13, we, we, we see a bit of a court trial that takes place. And this is a moment where God invites people to come into his courtroom to determine whether or not he really can do what he says he's going to do. So in verse eight, it says, bring out the people who are blind and yet have eyes, who are deaf and yet have ears. Let me pause here. God invites people who have eyes but they don't see and ears but they don't hear to come into court. Do you know this kind of person? This may be you, by the way. Somebody who knows what's true but you can't quite figure out how to make it work in your life. Somebody who's heard truth all your life but it kind of goes in one ear and out the other. This is the person who judges by their eyes whether or not God is fair and makes assessments as to how powerful God is based upon what they see and what God says to these people, okay, come and let's talk about what you know to be true about me. In verse nine, here's the charge. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. 
Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right and let them hear and say it is true. So God calls people to this court case, if you will, and he invites them to witness his historical works. In verse 10, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. And then God makes a stunning statement. Here's the conclusion, here's the verdict. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. Verse 11, I, I am the Lord, and besides me, there is no savior. If you're here today and not yet a Christian, maybe you're on the fence, or maybe you once thought of yourself as a Christian, but now you have really significant doubts, can I just remind you that this particular text is written for those kind of moments when you wonder, what is really going on? You know, God may be pursuing you and making things hard in your life in order to wake you up to the reality that you can't do life on your own anymore. He may have brought difficulties and circumstances in your life where you thought you knew, like you, 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 you thought you knew exactly what you were doing and then God leveled you, he cut the legs right out from underneath you and rather than seeing that as something that's mean or hard or unfortunate or unkind, it may be that God has leveled you in order to rescue you. Verse 13, here's what God says. Henceforth, I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? The idea is there's a sovereign God who rules over all of creation. He's pursuing people that belong to him in order to reclaim them, to rescue them from themselves. And this particular section in Isaiah is here in order to bring comfort and confidence to God's people while they're in exile. It's, de it's designed to remind them that their deliverer is unstoppable, that his power has no end, that he's proven himself to be trustworthy and powerful throughout history, and this is who God is. If we move over to the New Testament, we see the exact same thing through the lens of what Jesus did and who he is. Take, for instance, Romans 8, 31 to 32. What should we say to these things? Notice the power statement. If God is for us, who can be against us? And the answer is, yeah, no one. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So if you doubt this week, is God gonna take care of me? Just remind your heart. He took care of me in Christ. He can take care of this. Or Romans eleven thirty four. for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be glory forever and ever, amen. Or take Matthew 28, talking about the church living on mission. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. What a statement. And then he compels them, sends them on mission, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, notice, here it is again, I am with you always to the end of the age. Can I just remind you that the hope of your life, Christian, day in and day out, is not the absence of pain. And I don't say that in sort of a pessimistic way like, 
And you think last week was bad? Man, next week's gonna be awful. Like, that's not what I'm saying. But at the same time, if that happens and that's true, guess what? The same God who was in charge of 2019, the same God who's in charge of 2020 is the same God who's gonna be in charge of 2021. And five years from now, two years from now, 20 years from now, or a million years from now, we'll look back on this season and say, oh, that's what God was doing. And our role in this moment is simply to rest and trust that a powerful God is orchestrating all the events of our lives. And rather than pushing against the question of why, 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 we ought instead to grab a hold of the beautiful truths of who. The bedrock of your life is not the answer to the why question, it's the answer to the who question. And that's where you drive down the pylons of your belief into the bedrock of who and what God is. I believe it was Ray Ortland who said, the devil always overplays his hand. It's true. But you know what also is true? Is that God never gets outplayed, ever. And friends, sometimes we need to rehearse the historical moments when God didn't get outplayed. That's what Advent's all about. You got a crazy king on the throne when Jesus enters the world, Herod, and Herod couldn't kill him. Jesus grows up, the devil tempts him, but the devil couldn't compromise him. The Pharisees were threatened by him, but they couldn't discredit him. Pilate had power, but he couldn't dismiss him. The cross couldn't defeat him, the grave couldn't hold him, and can I remind you, history will not stop him. A powerful God will not be thwarted. That's important, because when things get hard or things get difficult, when we struggle with moments of despair or doubt, it doesn't mean that you've suddenly become a subpar Christian, but rather it means this is a moment to return to what I know. And what do I know? I know what verse 13 says, which is this. There is, I, so he says, I am he, I work, and who can turn it back? God's plans are never hindered. Here's the third truth. And that is this, that God's glory is going to be revealed. Belonging to God means that in Christ you are loved and that you are safe. But the goal is not to make much of us. No, the goal is to make much of God. The end game of what God is doing is his own glory. And chapter 43 returns to this issue of the Babylonian exile and God promises a new kind of exodus. Look at verse 14. He says, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans in the, sh in the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. He's saying this, you dwell in the, the, the land of Babylon. This is a superpower that has global dominance in this moment, and from Israel's perspective, Babylon is amazing, and God says, no, I'm your king. In a moment, he's gonna identify the way in which he can blow out a wick to God. The nation of Babylon is just like a little flame, and God just can go, and it's gone. In fact, look at what he says. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea and a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. 
God says, remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. In other words, this is who I am. This is what I have done. And yet what God says, but I'm going to do something even in this age. He says, behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? And here is the promise. I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. So just imagine. Imagine you're in a desert, an arid land with humid temperatures and no water anywhere to be seen, and all of a sudden you see a stream of water making its way through the desert. And the idea is that God does things that are impossible. You don't have streams in the desert. You don't walk on dry land between two walls of water. And yet that's exactly what God says that he does. And why does he do this? Well, look at what he says. Verse 20, the wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, here is it again, rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself. And here's the end game. Here's the reason why God created the world. Here's the reason why Jesus came into the world. Here's the reason why Jesus Christ of Nazareth died, was raised again from the dead. Here's the reason why people like you and me suddenly have the light bulb go on and we understand that we're sinners and we know that we need a savior. And in that glorious moment, God takes our sin and puts it on Jesus, takes his righteousness and puts it on us. And why does God do all of that? Answer, that they might declare my praise. The end game of redemption is not just to rescue people, it is to rescue people such that the whole universe would look at God's kindness and go, that's amazing. It is that we become a mirror of the glory of God because of his kindness to us. This is the purpose for which we have been created. This is the reason Jesus came into the world this is the reason why Jesus died, why he was raised again from the dead. It is for the praise and the glory of God. One day, everyone who knows Jesus as Lord and Savior will see him and be with him, and in that moment, our belonging and our beholding will combine. In that moment, we will see him as he is and we will bask in the beauty of our redemption, namely the glory of God. The end game is for God's glory to be seen. So can I just remind you of something that if you're a Christian, you should know, but we tend to forget. The end game is not for our comfort. The end game is not for everything to make sense. The end game isn't for everything to turn out like you hoped that it would when you were 22 years old. The end game isn't to have this dream life like you'd always longed for. The end game could have all of those things which wouldn't be bad in and of themselves, but that's not the goal. The goal is for the glory of God to be seen in and through our lives, and the reason that God tells us that you belong to him is so that we can be the kind of people that can be free to glorify him no matter what happens, no matter what difficulty comes, no matter how dark the skies, no matter how difficult the circumstances, no matter how deep the water, how hot the fire, or how overwhelming the flood, to be reminded that there is nothing that can separate me from the love of Christ. Nothing, nothing, nothing. 
When I was growing up, the church that my family went to would often recite portions of what was called or is called the Heidelberg Catechism. The first question of the Heidelberg Catechism is stunning in its hope. I'd like to read this together. I'm gonna read the question and then you read the answer along with me. What is your only comfort in life and death? Read this with me. That I am not my own, here it comes, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I belong to God. Father in heaven, we pray that today our hearts would so understand and resonate with these truths so that wherever you find us, and you know all of our hearts, that Isaiah 43 would be a help to us. God, for those today who are not yet Christians, that you would use this text to help them to see their need for a savior and to realize that the difficulties in life are part of a divine design to get their attention. And Lord, would you bring people to yourself today who would repent and confess Christ as Savior and Lord? And God, those, for those who know Jesus, who would call themselves followers of him, who would call themselves Christians, would you help us this week to be reminded that we belong to you? We don't have to make sense of everything. We don't have to have it be certain when we can rest in what a God, how God is sovereign over all things and what a God we serve. So God, give us comfort, we pray, from these truths. In the midst of so much that we don't know, help us to be reminded that this is what we do know. And church, before I give you a benediction this morning, would you just take a moment, and would you fill in this sentence? Lord, I thank you that I belong to you, and I'm asking for you to help me in and then fill in the blank. Because I belong to you, help me in. Jesus, we thank you that there is no pain, no difficulty, no hardship, no trial that is outside of your ability to use for our good and for your glory. So grant us, we pray, the grace to believe this truth and live in it today. And we ask this in the name of Christ our King, in Jesus' name, amen and amen.